volume. It's Classical Thunder, the most explosive collection of music you've ever heard. Get Classical Thunder on two cassettes for just $14.99 or two compact discs for $16.99. That's 32 awesome tracks in one thundering collection. preview other classical favorites albums. There's no minimum to buy and satisfaction guaranteed. So come on, crank it up. Call now for Classical Thunder. Welcome back, I'm Jonathan Bollinger, and this is the first mini-episode of our brand new season. I hope you've been enjoying it. We deliberately chose to release the high-scoring NFL games episode, of course, because the new NFL season had started, and we're hoping to kind of catch you in a mindset where you're, you know, thinking about sports at least, for those of you who follow sports. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the topic that Steve and I were going back and forth on. And for some of you who are hardcore sports fans, you probably have already thought through some of those issues, and I'm just hoping that those issues don't sound, you know, I don't know, woefully out of touch or behind the times. But I do think some of you who are casual or non-sports fans uh, as listeners, you know, you might have found it interesting uh, to sort of think of NFL as a TV program and the choices that they make in order to kind of keep that content exciting and keep the ratings up you know, in terms of attracting younger audiences who were really raised on video games and, and specifically sports video games. So they're trying to keep that scoring high and also, you know, competing against the NBA, who at least up to this point has done such a better job at attracting both of those markets. So we hope between the new episode on the NFL high-scoring games and the old episode from the archive, if you happen to listen to it, uh, you know, regarding the role that the AFL played back in the 1960s based on that great documentary that the NFL uh, released a few years back called Full Color Football. Well, we, we hope you got your absolute fill of sports television uh, to, to kick off our season. So if you've been listening, we do appreciate it. Uh, so you also want to remember that I'm talking about as if you're listening to all of this in sequence or you've just listened to it, etc. You don't have to, right? This is podcast. So remember the, the new episode of the new season, episode, uh, uh, I believe we have it as 98. You know, that's going to be there. That's always going to be there for you free in that main feed. So if you need to just kind of catch up down the road, that's totally fine. We'll, we'll always be here sort of waiting for you. So... What direction to talk about today in this mini-episode? Well, I'm going to try to do something a little different, and as I've mentioned in the past, I'm just trying to use these mini-episodes as really a way to connect myself to the listeners, but honestly also as a way to give myself a little bit of a break. You know, we're not trying to do as much full-on research as we normally would do, uh, so here in these mini-episodes, I'm going to very briefly introduce a topic which 
uh, I'm sure if you've heard the introduction or you read the title of this week's episode, uh, you know, that you are uh, pretty aware of what I'm about to talk about. But before I get into that, first off, I'll just also remind you that if you have been a patron uh, of the podcast and are enjoying the bonus, the brand new bonus episodes, well, there's a brand new bonus episode available for you today as well over on the Patreon Patreon feed. Uh, if you yourself uh, maybe are only a casual casual listener, but you might have a friend, turn them on. Maybe they'd want to uh, get access to both the full archive over on Patreon and also eight brand new bonus episodes that will be released uh, during this new season as well. So something to consider, something to think about. But let's get to what we all came for here today. And that is my fascination, and perhaps yours, for the classic 1994 Time Life music release, Classical Thunder. So (laughs) here's the basic idea. Uh, And give a little context here. So Time Life wasn't, of course, always Time Life, right? Originally, it was simply Time Magazine, and they were most famous for producing, you know, one of the more popular uh, weekly news magazines within the 20th century. And for those those of you who aren't uh, aware of this, there's actually a really interesting story about the founding of Time Magazine, and I'm gonna I'm gonna post it up on the show page on TVHistoryPod.com. Uh, even though honestly, as I just said, I'm not trying to do too much work on these mini episodes. But for this one, if you go to the 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 show page on uh, TVHistoryPod.com, I'll put some links to some various sources and books that uh, you might be interested in if you're interested in learning a bit a bit more about Time Magazine. But basically, there are two gentlemen who are responsible for starting Time Magazine. Technically, there's a third involved there, but often it's these two who are are giving credit. One was Britton Hayden, who, much like a lot of original founders of creative works, or at least, you know, journalistic works, was, of course, a true original, uh, truly inspired but a lot, like a lot of these stories, unfortunately was not long for the job or RIP the world because unfortunately, um, you know, he died very, very young. And even when they don't die, sometimes they're so creative, they're so, so sort of a vision that they just honestly don't quite fit into our everyday sort of world, which is, can tend to be a bit logical and rational and playing it safe and all that sort of things. So long story short, he dies young uh, and and also essentially gets pushed out, although obviously pushed out before dying. Uh, Although with that, and I don't want to spoil everything, but uh, he was actually very smart with how to leave a lot of his value in the magazine to his family. Like, he was being very responsible and very smart, and obviously Time Magazine was very uh, profitable. Uh, But there's a really interesting story how he kind of got screwed out of that as well (laughs) by the the other founder uh, and the one who really gets credit for molding time uh, in the long haul into how we think about time, and that is Henry Luce. And even if you've never really thought about uh, one of the, uh, about this, 
one of the things that Time has always, as a magazine, has always done really well is turning their own reporting of news events into this sort of like instant history. And, um, you know, think about it. How many times have you been at the grocery store or seen some type of Time magazine commemorative issue? And of course, obviously, you know, they're not going to pay for new content. They just go through their own archive and repurpose all their old coverage of that event, of that event and resell it as something significant, something important. And sometimes it actually was, right? They really were the ones who got the, the, the really good photograph or they wrote the really good uh, uh, definitive article on a particular event. But it's more than that because Luce himself was actively trying to mold you to know and sort of have a sense of identity uh, for ourselves as Americans, right? Sort of our sense of who we are, our place in history. And one of the strongest examples of that was that for World War II, for Luce, it wasn't a story of great tragedy or great suffering. It was more a story that affirmed the U.S.'s unique moral courage and bravery. And that was a narrative that he reaffirmed over and over and over. So it's not a coincidence that this strategy that they took and then continued on, you could find that, you know, all the way through in the ensuing decades. And as I said, I can pretty much guarantee you, uh, let's see, where are we? Not to date the podcast, but 2026, what, 25th anniversary of 9-11? Look for probably Time Magazine commemorative issue at your uh, grocery store. But we're here to talk about classical thunder, not a history of Time Magazine. So let's skip ahead a little bit here uh, uh, really quick, but got to give a little more history first. So Time Magazine at that time, along with U.S. News and World Report and Newsweek, were really important periodicals in an age of the mid to late 20th century media where physical magazines were still super duper important. And Time Magazine, you know, was certainly, at least in my opinion, top dog there. And now I realize that Time Magazine's readership was definitely uh, upper class. And you can look at, 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 you know, basic demographic studies that support that. However, I've always gone back and forth on this because one of my, one of the reasons I've always been fascinated with Time Magazine is because I always have a sinking suspicion that folks like my family, who you either call middle class or sort of working class or a mixture of both, I think these folks also read Time Magazine, maybe not subscribe to it, or maybe they did, uh, as a way to sort of, you know, aspire uh, to know a little more, right? To kind of get an edge about what was going on in the world, what was considered important, what you should know if you want to kind of get ahead about the quote-unquote important topics. But all that being said, uh, Time Magazine and eventually their their book uh, book and music releases definitely skewed toward the the sort of upper class. Now, the other thing that you have to realize is that relatively early in Time's run, they bought out in about the middle of Life Magazine's run, Life Magazine, and so that was just 1936. So. After 1936, when they started to do certain products, like the books and records, uh, that's why they would start having that label of Time Life. 
And eventually, uh, there's a lot of shenanigans here with sort of the buying and selling of corporate IP and mergers and buyouts and all this stuff. I'll talk a little bit about it later, but I'm not going to get too bogged down in that because honestly, it's dizzying to try to keep track of it all as, as the money flows. But what is interesting for our story is that essentially what you have is an idea that you're trying to reach consumers with a particular product and it's a consumer generation who's still very much tied to physical media, as I'm sure a lot of you are and I myself am as well. So eventually what we get is a lot of companies using a trusted IP or brand, Time Life, to continually sell uh, nostalgic products to an aging demographic. But let's get back to our purpose here and basically try to figure out <laughs> how if you were watching TV in 1994, specifically probably cable television in 1994, uh, how did you end up seeing the ever-present and probably one of the greatest television commercials ever uh, for this direct to, direct to uh, 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 your home uh, 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 classical collection titled Classical Thunder. Well, the history starts back in the early 1960s as popular music sales were increasing due to that infusion of rock and roll and obviously the teenage revolution. But that revolution really affects uh, Time Life's offerings in two ways. For our purposes, one is just the market itself, right? The idea that music is growing, people are buying recorded music increasingly. And so, you know, if you want to make money as a company, why not offer something, some of that? But the other element is that there's this, in, there's this conservative impulse to want to embrace older forms of music against what's perceived to be, whether it actually was or not, to be rebellious or silly uh, or, or maybe even dangerous, you know, music. So Time Life Books began in Chicago in 1961. By 1966, Time Life Records began offering mixed media efforts. And what was interesting here, as far as costs, was that eventually they realized, why not just release the records and add just a very slim pamphlet or one sheet that provided some context for the music overall rather than an actual hardcover book. These were typically two to five record sets that came with a hardcover book and they would focus on genres like opera, classical, and orchestral music and sometimes some easy listening thrown in. The first series was released from 1966 through 1968, and it focused on the classics. It was titled The Story of Great Music slash Concerts of Great Music. Then, the early 1970s brought a series called The Swing Era that focused on the music of both the 1930s and the 1940s. And so as the mid-1970s wore on, Time Life ended up going back to sort of the classics with a series called The Great Men of Music, followed in 1977 by the work of Arthur Fiedler of the Boston Pops Orchestra. And then in 1979, we get back and we go a different way rather, and we do Giants of Jazz. 
Then we do two series on country music. And then if we skip ahead to the mid-80s, we get legendary singers uh, uh, in box sets. And again, you're still provided context about the music you're listening to, but it is at best a paperback booklet accompanying these sets rather than a full-on hardcover book. But this takes us up to the mid-1980s with one of their most, if not probably their most successful series called The Rock and Roll Era, uh, producing some 50-plus volumes. Uh, it started as vinyl and, of course, cassettes, but really just CDs, right? Because then that was the then new uh, medium. And so what we see happening at that time as well you know, starting in 81, is that MTV proves that cable television can be an effective vehicle to basically sell music. So between that and the idea of, you know, direct uh, telephone salesmanship via, uh, you know, cable television commercials and then eventually infomercials, the sort of time-life music collections get a real boost, right? This is a real interesting way to, to sell music to, to people. But the other element there, as you note, is they start to move away from the sort of quote-unquote conservative classics or genres because they know that the boomer generation is aging and they are ripe for some nostalgia. And I won't bore you now with sort of Reagan's role and all that and blah, blah, blah. And also just generally the, the nostalgia that began in the 70s for, you know, things that were considered, quote unquote, pe more peaceful and more prosperous in a post-World War II uh, U.S. But the point is, is that's why you have the rock and roll era. And eventually you're going to get things like uh, classic rock uh, and then going back conservative, your hit parade, country USA, rhythm and blues contemporary country, and on and on and on. And again, as I said, I'll, I'll put up links on our show page because there's some absolutely awesome archives on live that, online that I am definitely using as a source here to help me uh, uh, catalog all this. But even they, as almost exhaustive a catalog as I could find, uh, uh, even they are, are only scratching the surface. It's amazing how much product Time Life sort of, sort of put out. Okay, so here's the part where I'm ashamed to admit that I'm going to gloss over this very important point because as of the time of this recording, again, I just don't have enough uh, uh, of, a, of a time to really sort of nail down this issue. But the issue is I don't have enough of a reason or origin story that is satisfying enough to my original question, which is why exactly did they choose this collection with this sort of marketing campaign and this commercial in 1994? As I stated, they released a lot of collections and it increasingly became varied. But my original idea was, well, maybe the Trans-Siberian Orchestra had already been around and already gotten popular and maybe this collection might serve a sort of sweet spot after that. But doing some basic research, that's actually the reverse. The Trans-Siberian Orchestra came out a couple of years after this collection. Then my other idea was, well, maybe they're going to re-release uh, at that time, or maybe there was a lot of talk 
about the use of orchestral music inserted in either, you know, quote-unquote tough guy films or more serious war films, like An Apocalypse Now. And maybe that was sort of in the cultural consciousness in the early 90s, uh, which then would prompt this, this release of the collection. But honestly, I just haven't had the time yet to go through sort of old newspaper archives, uh, uh, sort of news reports on television, that sort of thing, to kind of see if anyone was sort of talking about that idea. And then, of course, there's other elements that are happening in the late 1980s that could also be a part of this. And one of those is the idea that at that time, heavy metal music, or at least glam metal, uh, was very, very popular for a few years. And if you've ever listened to, you know, heavy metal, you know, of course, that lots of it have certain classical leanings. You know, certain guitarists or certain bands uh, really love to sort of, you know, moor their playing style or their songwriting or the song structure or whatever with sort of classical package, uh, uh, passages or, or concepts. So it could be just simply, and again, this is a guess on my part, I don't know the answer, unfortunately, but it could be a combination of we, uh, we have something going on in sort of heavy metal music. We have this idea that we know we've used this, uh, this type of music in sort of films oriented more toward, you know, men than women. And then as time life is always, uh, trying to sort of freshen up the way they sell their music, uh, particularly music they'd already been selling, this might have just been an obvious way to try to sell certain types of classical music to buyers who, who didn't normally listen to classical music. Now, there is a good list of credits on the Classical Thunder CDs, and I've done some initial internet searches for these folks, uh, and they are around, you know, working at other companies, etc. But I haven't reached out to them yet uh, to see what they remember about these projects and their goals. But honestly, I already have an idea in my head for a full-length episode about sort of this type of music selling. So I may try to hold, I may try to incorporate them, you know, hold off for now, but incorporate them later into that, that larger episode. And honestly, it's one that I hope kind of Andrew uh, will be available for as well. The other element about Classical Thunder that I thought was really interesting was that as you look at the credits for it, it's not just Time Life Music that is credited, but also the Telarc International Corporation. And basically, they partnered with Telarc for these classical uh, compositions, or I guess recordings, because Telarc was one of those really cool companies, uh, much in a way sort of like Dumont, that were begun by engineers, particularly audio engineers, and became very successful in their recording techniques. And they were one of the and this is a Ohio company, and they were one of the first to really embrace digital audio recording uh, technology way before other people did. And what was interesting was that I guess back in the day when it was more of the thing for you know consumers to have large stereo systems, large audio setups, both pro and consumer, is Telarc's uh, recordings of certain classical compositions that featured canons uh, were actually used to sort of calibrate and sort of validate, you know, that your system was set up properly. And I bring that up because when you look at the credits for Classical Thunder Disc 1, 
<laughs> it says at the bottom, and it just it just makes me laugh because this whole thing uh, uh, makes me laugh. In all caps, in bold, uh, with exclamation point, it says, "Warning: Digital cannons." The cannons of the 1812 Overture are recorded at a very high level. Lower levels are recommended for initial playback until a safe level can be determined for your equipment. So <laughs> they weren't messing around here. But, uh, you know, really cool company, really good company. And unfortunately, this isn't a business podcast. But as with lots of mom and pop, you know, original sort of companies with creative visionary people, Eventually, it gets bought out one way or the other, and of course, there's promises made, but are they rarely kept? No, especially in light of profit and desire for other directions. So eventually, the company isn't quite what it, it what it used to be. But uh, I think their work stands up for you know its itself. You know, it, it stands the test of time. They were very good at recording and and very good with audio technology. So. Uh, look them up. They're interesting. Telark, uh, I believe Cleveland, uh, 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 Ohio company. So another interesting thing or element that I learned in sort of learning about classical thunder is uh, just how long Time Life Music continued to sell physical media um, to this sort of older demographic because it might be a little later uh, than you than you realize. So I guess it's really a matter of perspective if you consider this relatively recently or pretty long ago. But at least in my mind, it seems relatively recently. But as of this record, only about 13 years ago, you can find a really good article. And again, I'll link this on the show page to Fortune Magazine, or I guess Fortune Online now, fortune.com writing about how even as of 2010, there was still this Time Life brand being used to sell physical uh, media to that aging demographic. Now, the business side of it, and again, I'm not going to go through all this craziness, but some broad strokes here, and very broad strokes, was eventually in 1990, Time merged with Warner Brothers, so that's how we got Time Warner. But of course, Time Life was still a sub-brand. And then there was the whole fiasco around 2000, where they merged with AOL, and that didn't last long. And then eventually, the reformed AT&T got into it, and then they merged, and it was Warner Media for a while. And then eventually, nowadays, it's uh, you know spinning certain elements off, and then also becoming... Uh, uh, part of Discovery Networks, and on and on, right? It's the constant sort of merger merger uh, game, but always, of course, keeping quote-unquote valuable uh, intellectual property and brand names that consumers will recognize and, and, and buy uh, based on, on that name. So the Time Life brand, uh, still perceived as valuable, was spun off in 2003 to two private equity firms. One was Ripplewood Holdings and the other is Zelnick Media. And even within this and their myriad of holding companies and brands that they control, it even gets confusing in this. But I believe that Zelnick Media still controls the Time Life brand. It may be under their other uh, 
brand called Direct Holdings Worldwide, or it could also be under Columbia Music Entertainment because they also control that name too, but I don't think so. I think it's Direct Holdings Worldwide. The point here though, regardless of all that craziness, the point here is as, as, as recently as, or just over 10 years ago, not either counting or not counting the pandemic because that sometimes doesn't count in some ways, um, you know, they were still using this old playbook of, do you want to remember or be exposed to music uh, from your childhood or your youth? Or do you want to sort of feel a little sort of more upper crusty with, you know, uh, being exposed to the classics? or whatever, whatever your favorite genre is, well, we're going to sell it to you over the tel- television and you'll get the, the music on, on physical media. And that's just, sort of, that's just sort of interesting to me. I'm sure these days uh, there is uh, some availability of it, but I think as of, uh, uh, I want to say early this year, I think I read an article where they're finally, you know, closing that business down and trying to move solely to digital, much in the way that Netflix has finally started to kill their physical disc uh, business to uh, fully digital uh, streaming uh, content. So to conclude, I unfortunately don't think I answered my own question, which is how exactly did we get that wonderful commercial for Classical Thunder? right? It's just silly and it's ridiculous and it's over the top. And that's why we love it. But that's why I love all these commercials, right? I could do an episode on any of them, the rock and roll era or love songs or whatever it is. Uh, and, and again, maybe I will, uh, cause I, I kind of have a sweet a soft spot in my heart for, uh, some of the late night, uh, uh, music infomercials that always star some, uh, former singer or band member or whoever. So, That's what I know so far, as far as Classical Thunder and your other favorites from the Time Life Music Library. I hope you enjoyed sort of learning a little bit about the history of of how Time Life sold uh, music to you. And again, I'll try to revisit this in a later episode. Again, just reminding you that uh, we always have many episodes free for you to listen to for your commute or while you're at the gym along with the brand new main episodes that will be coming up. Uh, This one I can tease because we are now in the, uh, we are now in the new season, but uh, soon Steve will be providing us a very good two-part episode on the classic 1970s television miniseries, Holocaust. Uh, That'll be with a very special guest. So look for that. And again, if you or a friend might be willing to consider donating a couple bucks uh, to the Patreon, and that's Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast at Patreon, uh, you'd get access to the full archive of episodes as well as some brand new Patreon-only episodes. And I'm sure you realized it, and we made note of it in our social media, but we changed our logo recently to a brand new logo uh, that is just ITB. Uh, within a television set. Uh, Hopefully that didn't throw you off too much. Uh, We still do like the old logo. We might bring it out for certain occasions, certain purposes, but we have a new logo going forward uh, as of now. So if you stayed with me for this entire mini episode, I do appreciate it. Again, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. For new listeners, thanks for checking us out, and uh, we'll catch you next time.
Bye-bye. To order Classical Thunder, call 1-800-346-2600. That's 1-800-346-2600. Or send $14.99 for two cassettes or $16.99 for two CDs, plus $3.50 shipping to Classical Thunder, Department 1, Richmond, Virginia. Or call 1-800-346-2600.